Good evening. It's good to be here tonight, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark this evening, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 13 this evening, Mark chapter 2 and verse 13, as we look to our Savior here in the middle of the week. What a refreshment it is to gather with the Lord's people, to sing praises to His name, to encourage one another and edify one another in the faith. I was thinking in Galatians chapter 1, Paul declares that Christ came to deliver His people from the present evil age. And we are surrounded by the present evil age all week. That's where we exist. We're in the world uh, but we're, we're not of it. We're delivered from it because of Christ and what He has done. And what joy that gives us, what hope, what confidence in the midst of all of the uncertainties, in the midst of the pressures that uh, wage in our world. Of course, the reality is, if you're like me, which I'm assuming you're human, so you probably are, um, we, we have this tendency to still like the age from which we're delivered, or at least aspects of it. And so to come and look at Christ in all of His glory and behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world uh, is a, an adjustment for our, for our spirits uh, to continue to wean us from the world. And as we look at this account of Christ's calling Levi and dealing with some of the opposition that that stirred up, I pray that it will give us a renewed joy in following Christ, our Savior, the one who called us to follow Him. So let's read beginning in verse 13, and we'll read down through verse 22. And uh, just as we go through, we'll see the Lord calling Levi and then uh, fellowshipping with him. And then you'll notice that there are two questions that are raised because of our Lord's interaction uh, with Levi and those gathered at his house. And Jesus answers those. So Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, let's just recall what Mark is doing as he gives us a record of our Lord's life. He begins his gospel with the statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's declaring Christ is the Son of God. And this is particularly important for his Roman audience, who would immediately understand that language as challenging the sovereignty of Caesar, who was also identified as the Son of God. And so Mark is establishing the fact that there is no greater than Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the good news is that Christ, the Son of God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, came to preach the gospel and to be the gospel. He came to preach the culmination, the fulfillment of time, that the kingdom of God was now in their midst. And there was entrance into the kingdom of God by repenting and believing the gospel. And as Mark starts to record Christ's ministry, he started in chapter 1 by demonstrating that the presence of Christ changes things. He called men who were fishers to be fishers of men. He went into the synagogue and taught with authority and silenced demons. He rearranged Peter's priorities and, and he cleansed the leper. And as we move into chapter 2, we find that Mark is presenting Christ's authority at another level. It's a level that is most needed for every man, woman, and child. And it's a level also that stirs up the greatest opposition. Jesus Christ is the one who has authority to forgive sin. And in the first, the first record in, in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 12, when Jesus declared that the sins of the paralytic were forgiven, that stirred up opposition with the religious leaders. And Jesus made it very clear that he has the power to forgive sins with his word. And he demonstrated it by with his word commanding the paralytic to rise and walk, which he did immediately. And Jesus said, I'm doing that so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And as we come into this next section, the emphasis is on whose sins Jesus forgives. He forgives sins... But whose sins does Jesus forgive? Well, Jesus forgives sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
And that is the emphasis of this passage, that Jesus forgives sinners. But what we're going to find as we move through this passage, when Jesus calls a despised person, a tax collector, to follow him, and then, and then dares to go to his house, that raises all kinds of questions with the religious elite. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he a friend of tax collectors and sinners? This was the, this was the most degrading slur that they could, that they could attach to Jesus, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then they question the very religious systems that Jesus is introducing as he simply calls people to follow him and obliterates the old systems of works-based acceptance and the traditions that the Pharisees had piled on top of the Word of God. And so what we're going to find is that Christ's free grace as he calls a despised tax collector to follow him, and as he goes to his house, and there are many tax collectors and sinners, it's his free grace that summons sinners to himself. But that same free grace, which every child of God rejoices in and glories in, because we know without the free grace of God, we would have nothing that same free grace scandalizes the self-righteous. And we begin to see that in this passage, and it will culminate at the end of this section in chapter 3 and verse 6 when the Pharisees link arms with another religious and political group, the Herodians, and start to plot to kill Jesus. Free grace, Christ's free grace to sinners does scandalize the self-righteous. We're going to look tonight at, at this passage in two sections. We're going to see in verses 13 through 15, free grace exhibited. And then in verses 16 through 22, free grace explained. Free grace exhibited and free grace Explained, It's by the free grace of Christ that he forgives sinners. It's nothing that we have. For by grace are you saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Well, let's look here in verse 13. Jesus, again, is... Out by the sea, this is one of the markers transitioning from the previous account. He went out again by the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching, teaching them. So again, we see the emphasis of Jesus' teaching ministry. He came to proclaim the gospel and to be the gospel. And although he did miracles, the miracles were, were miracles to substantiate his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. His primary ministry was proclaiming the gospel of God, which would ultimately lead to his death in providing for the gospel but he's here teaching the crowd. And 
Likely, the essence of his teaching is back with what Mark told us in chapter 1 and verse 15 when he said and summarized Jesus' ministry. Jesus preached, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And we could look at the Sermon on the Mount as an example of the expansion of that, but he's teaching, he's laying out the gospel to the crowds. So then verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now the familiarity of this story uh, can sometimes work against us when we, when we look at a passage like this. So let's just take a moment and refresh uh, our minds about what tax collectors were back in, in Israel in Jesus' day. Israel was under Roman rule, Roman authority, and a tax collector in this case was a, a person who worked for Herod Antipas, one of the Roman rulers, and uh, often what would happen is a Jew, a, an aspiring Jew, uh, a Jew with aspirations, with financial aspirations, but not gr- great aspirations financially and not great ethics, uh, would, would franchise a, a, a tax station from the Roman government. So it's, I guess you'd say it's an, H, uh, a, a, an ant- antiquity version of H&R Block or something. And so he was a, a tax collector under Roman authority, but he was, he was a Jew who was working for the Romans and as such, therefore, was despised by the Jews. Here's a Jew, one of their fellow countrymen, who's working for the oppressors and taking Jewish money to give to the oppressors. And not only is he doing that, he could take whatever he could beyond his quota for Rome and keep that for himself. He was viewed as treasonous against God because he supported Rome and despised by the people because he took their money. They were barred from witnessing in court in the Jewish synagogue. They couldn't bear witness in the court. And Jews were actually permitted to lie to tax collectors. You you know, don't lie unless it's a tax collector. They're so despised, you can lie to the tax collectors. They were more heinous in the eyes of the Jews than lepers because unlike lepers, they chose their profession. At least lepers didn't have a choice. Tax collectors did. This man was despised. He was hated. He was the scum of the earth in the Jewish mind. And Jesus passes by. He sees this despised man at the tax booth doing his despised work for Rome. And he says, follow me. Here's a man whose heart is ensnared with treason, with greed, He is in the clutches of the world. 
as deep into the world as as the the Jewish mind of and the ancient world could imagine. I mean, this guy was just entrenched in the world. And what we see as we think about free grace exhibited is here is this man entrenched, clutched in the world, and Christ summons sinners. He summons sinners out of his free grace. He summons sinners. And we say, well, what kind of sinners? The very worst. The very worst. The one where you would think there was no hope. The one where you would think of all people, not him. And yet that is the one Jesus saw and said, you Follow me. What hope there is. I know that there are many testimonies represented in this room of people who have been summoned like this. You experienced it. You you were in the clutches of the God of this world. You were in the clutches of of greed and of, and of worldly aspirations, and God summons you through his son, Jesus Christ. But beyond that, how many of us have those that we love that are in the clutches of the world? And we look and we say, how? How, how will they be delivered? Well, there's one who has the authority and the love and the grace that they need, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And and when he summons a sinner and says, follow me, what happens? Well, he got up and he left everything and he followed Jesus. And folks, when when you're a tax collector in the ancient world and you leave, you are not coming back. You're allowed He got up and he left. He rose and he followed him. There's so much here with with the call of Christ. And I just want to point out that, that when Christ summons sinners, he summons you to follow him with everything. It's it's not, you know, trust me and then just live however you want. It's follow me. It's it's not believe some facts and assent to some facts and, and you're fine. No, it's follow me. Join my band. Come into the kingdom of God. Follow your king. Matthew, in his response, is a pattern for what every true believer does who is summoned by Christ. He rose and followed. He got up and he obeyed the summons. He left everything behind and he followed Christ. And when Christ summons sinners and they follow, saved sinners will separate from their prior life. And and the the extent of what that looks like will certainly vary from person to person. 
But there will be a turning away from the world and a turning away from sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a separation from the prior life to serve Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ. And and let's just look at a couple of passages that make this very, very clear. They're, They're familiar passages, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in verses 9 through 11, in verses 9 and, 9 and 10, Paul lists various kinds of unrighteousness that will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then as he goes on to address their, the Corinthians' terrible rationalization of sexual immorality, he extends that application in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He's reminding them, look, you belong to Christ People who belong to Christ, people who are followers of Christ, everything belongs to Christ. They separate from that prior life of sin. They're given over completely to Jesus Christ. Turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 3, as Peter picks up and is exhorting his readers to follow Christ, he says in verse verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." What does he say? Verse 3, the times that is past suffices. You've had the opportunity to follow the world, and you know that it gave no satisfaction. Don't go back there, because following Christ means following Christ with your whole heart. Don't go back to that prior way of living. And and you think about what he says here, and this is a a good litmus test for us, isn't it? In verse 4, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. So let's get a little personal here and just ask, is there anyone of the world that's surprised that you don't live like that anymore? Right? Not as a matter of proud self-righteousness, but just as a matter of the fact Your allegiance is to your king. Your allegiance is to pursue holiness. 
Your allegiance is to pursue conformity to the image of the Son of God as you behold His glory and are changed from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit of the Lord. Folks, that's what the Christian life is like. It's like becoming more like Christ and the world just can't comprehend that. Are you crazy? I mean, we're doing all this fun stuff. We're living it up and... And I mean, we're sleeping in on Sunday mornings and, and you're, doing, you're doing all this fanatical stuff. Now, Christ is precious. Those who follow Christ, they rise and they leave and they follow him. They separate from their prior life. We'll go back to Mark in just a second here, but but we also see from, from Levi's response that saved sinners not only separate from their prior life, but they serve Christ. When Christ summons sinners and they follow him, they, they, they respond to his summons, they separate from their prior life, and they serve their Lord and Savior. And, and I wanted to stay here in First Peter because as, as Peter reminds his readers, look, you need to continue to move away from those things that, that identified you in, in the prior, in your prior life. He transitions then in verse seven to start to delineate what it looks like to serve Christ. So verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. And let's just stop there and think about that for a moment. The end of all things is at hand. Do you believe that? You know, Jesus said in Luke 21 that, that when there's all kinds of chaos in the world and fear and nations rising against nations and, 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 and ecological upheaval and all of these other things, you know what that is? That's simply a footstep of the coming of the Son of Man because the end of all things is at hand. And he says, wake up. Get out of your dissipation and drunkenness with the things of the world. Serve your Savior that's coming. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keeping one another, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I'm, we could spend a lot of time in this passage, and that's not the point. The point tonight is to say, look, here, what is Peter doing? He's saying, if you are in Christ, you're going to serve Christ. You're going to be sober-minded. You're going to pray. You're going to be hospitable to one another. You're going to love one another. You're going to use the spiritual gifts that God has given you to serve the Lord. And you're going to do that, and it's going to be to the glory of God. Because Christ is coming again. Wake up and serve your King. And what we find back then, and going back to Mark, Mark chapter 2, we kind of went a little bit in reverse here. 
Jesus said, follow me, he did. He rose and he followed him. He was summoned by the free grace of Christ. He was summoned by his Savior. And we'll find that he eventually would be one of the 12 apostles. But in verse 15, then as he followed Christ, what happened? Well, as he reclined at table in his house, and most likely that's referring to Levi, Many tax collectors and sinners are reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Christ summoned Levi, and Levi served his Savior. He hosted his Savior, and he hosted his Savior with his other tax collectors and sinners and disciples, those who needed the Savior. Levi was a servant. And Jesus was with the tax collectors and sinners. And one of the beautiful things of this passage, first Christ summons sinners. He says, follow me. But then, pardon the colloquialism here, Christ also sups with sinners. Follow me. And he follows him to his house. And he dines with him. And he dines with tax collectors and with sinners. Oh, our Lord is so gentle and humble and patient. He would spend time with the lowest of society. He would be gracious to those in the greatest need. There is so much with, with this picture. Christ himself is, is a banquet for the soul. Here the Son of Man is eating with a despised man. <laughs> the Son of Man, the one who's going to come in power and glory that's reflected in Daniel, and, and here he is with, with the despised of the earth. And there's a foreshadowing of the great picture in Revelation 19.9 where it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, While he was on earth, he dined with tax collectors and sinners. And there is coming a day when all the sinners that are redeemed by the grace of Christ will dine with the Lamb. And blessed are those who who are part of that table. But in the meantime, the Lord gives us great joy in our fellowship with Him. We we have this this idea of Jesus, Jesus fellowshipping with being in fellowship with those that He redeems and those He loves and and two other passages. In in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul actually prays for the Ephesians that they they will know the fullness of Christ dwelling with them. And and the word that he employs there is is a word that gives us a picture of, of Jesus being at home in their lives. Is Jesus at home in your life? Does he have access to every cupboard and, and closet and, and every room, does he dwell there? And of course, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, as Jesus himself is addressing a church where 
There's some self-sufficiency and they need to repent. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. He uses this picture again to, to show us the closeness of the fellowship, to be at table with another person, to share food with another person is symbolic of the fellowship and of, of, of the unity Jesus sups with sinners. The joy that, that we experience of fellowship with Christ on, on earth, and there are those times, right, that by God's grace we enjoy a sense of, of the sweetness of the fellowship of Christ. We, we, we long for it to be more, but there's coming a day when it will be like that. It will be unbroken fellowship, unbroken sweetness of being in the very presence of the Lamb for all eternity. And so those who are in Christ, those who have been summoned by Christ out of His free grace to the worst of the worst, they serve with delight. I just want to appeal to anyone here this evening and we're going to come, come back to this, but sometimes we can think of, the, you know, I, I, don't, I, I can't come to Christ. I've done too much wrong. Now, this passage is here to make that point. No, that's not the case. There's no one that is outside of the reach of the abundant free grace of Jesus Christ. Get up and follow your Savior. And leaving all to follow Christ only means the joy of eternal fellowship with Him. So there might be someone else here listening this evening, whether here on the live stream, and Christ is summoned. And yet the world, the world has its hooks deep in your soul. The temptation for wealth, the temptation for the, the glitz of worldly ease that is nothing but a phantom. But all of those temptations are competing with you, with your soul. Throw them off. Throw them off like Levi and rise up and follow Christ. Following Christ is a matter of eternal destiny. The world will not save your soul. The world will not deliver you from eternity under the wrathful presence of God in a place called hell. That's, that's your eternal destiny if you're in the clutches of the world, if you're serving the world, if you're serving the God of this world, it will end in disaster. That's absolutely certain. Leaving all to follow Christ means the joys of eternal fellowship with him. Follow me, says Jesus. Follow me. And Levi rose up and followed him. That is the operation. That's the operation of the free grace of Jesus Christ. A despised sinner. And, and we're all that way. A despised sinner summoned by the Son of God, the pure, holy, righteous, perfect Son of God. And he follows, and he becomes his servant. 
Now, what we're confronted with as we continue in this passage is a very sad reality. In the midst of this wonderful exhibition of the free grace of the Lord Jesus to desperate sinners, there are those who despise the free grace of Christ. It says in verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is not an innocent question. <laughs> this is a question out of, out of being absolutely appalled at what is taking place. So again, to understand the import of what's taking place here, this is the first appearance of the Pharisees in Mark's gospel. So who are these Pharisees? What are they? Well, Pharisees were a morally upright and strict sect of religious leaders. They were the conservatives, if you will. They held many orthodox beliefs. They believed in the resurrection. They were monotheistic, believed in one God. They believed that the individual has responsibility before God. They also believed in God's sovereignty. They believed in the sanctity of life. And they even went on missions to convert the Gentiles. Jesus addresses that in, in, in uh, Matthew 23. These are orthodox in their beliefs. They love the law. They love the scriptures. Jesus even says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says that in John chapter 5. And yet, they strangled the word of God. They had gotten to a point where, where their sect, if you will, had been calcified by strangling the word of God with piles and piles of man-made tradition that they valued as highly as the Word of God, which means they didn't value the Word of God. And so the, these, these religious leaders, it's, it's difficult, and it was difficult in that day. In, in a sense, they, they looked the part. I mean, they loved the law of God. They loved the Word of God. They, they believed in God. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in a lot of important things. And yet, they're questioning Christ. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the best and most simple way to describe these people were that they were self-righteous. They were self-righteous. They depended on their own works. They depended on their own merits to gain favor with God. And of course, Paul himself was a Pharisee, and he describes much of what that lifestyle was like. So when we come to these Pharisees and think about them in terms of self-righteousness, we need to pause for a moment and consider self-righteousness. We need to consider self-righteousness. What, what is self-righteousness? And, you know, when, when you start to think about self-righteousness and you look at self-righteousness in the Scripture, what you find is that self-righteousness is extremely difficult to detect in your own heart. 
And it's very easy to project it on others. And so when, we, when we're trying to define this and trying to understand the Pharisees, we need to do so with, with an eye on our own heart and life. We have to do so with an understanding that, that you can't just give a blanket, simple definition of self-righteousness and, and move on and think, okay, I've got that defined and I'm good to go here. Andrew Bonar is very helpful, I think, in, in filling out some of the nuances of self-righteousness. And you know, there's a little book I have. It's, it's, it's the, the Visitor's Text, uh, uh, Visitor's Handbook of Text. And, and so he, he goes through different scenarios where, where you might have a pastoral visit with someone. And one of, one of the scenarios that he gives is visiting with someone who's self-righteous. Well, that sounds like a really pleasant visit, you know? Hello, I'm here to visit you because I think you're self-righteous. Um, obviously, that's not how it, how it typically plays out. But he has some really, really helpful thoughts there of, of, of understanding what, what is self-righteousness? What does it look like? What, what kind of, I mean, really, what kind of person would be scandalized by the free grace of Christ? I mean, I, this is important. And here, here are some descriptions. Self-righteousness is trusting in decency of character, integrity, or amiability. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a decent person. I've never lied. And we haven't got to the ninth commandment yet, have we? I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I'm amiable. You know, this, I'm Okay. Going on, resting on church attendance, sacraments, or prayer. Making a savior out of one's own efforts or earnestness. I was so, so earnest when I prayed. I mean, of course I'm, of course I'm saved, right? I mean, just look at that earnestness. Assuming that sorrow, repentance, Conviction, even joined with love, will in themselves commend one to God. Now, now he's getting really nuanced because he's, he's using terms like repentance. Yeah, but if I'm depending on repentance itself, it's a form of self-righteousness. Making faith making faith itself a savior. And even resting part on the rock and part on the sand, part on Christ and part on supposed Christian graces. Oh, self-righteousness can be so subtle and so insidious. Bonar goes on to quote George Swinock in a very sobering statement. How dreadful the fall from the high turret of presumption into the deep pit of perdition. Raise myself up on presumptions, looking at the externals, looking at the orthodox, yet not looking to Christ. 
and fall from a presumption all the way down to perdition. It's difficult to detect in your own heart, and it's easy to project on others. And so when we come to passages like this in the Gospels, where we have the Pharisees, and there are many of them, it's so important that we give weight to what's happening and, and, and let the Lord God do a work in our own lives and, and, and examine us before Him. So in a passage like this, what, what do we see of these self-righteous Pharisees? Well, just a couple of things. First, we see that they, they have an unjust assessment of associations when they saw who Jesus was with, right? They had a problem with that. Oh, oh, I see who he eats with. Not good. How can you eat with them? An unjust assessment of associations. A fixation on minutia. Who are you eating with? Why are you eating at all? Why aren't you fasting? Right? There's just a fixation on, on all of these all of these boundaries and rules and traditions. And ultimately, we see in this passage that self-righteous Pharisees are entirely inconsistent. They're one great big contradiction. Because what are they so upset about here? Well, they're, they're upset that Jesus is eating with a tax collector because a tax collector is hired by Herod Antipas. Okay, but look at chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus, how dare you eat with tax collectors who are hired by Herod Antipas? You know what? We need to destroy Jesus. Herodians who financially and politically support Herod Antipas, come and help us destroy Jesus. Folks, this is the essence of self-righteousness. It's a great big web of contradiction. And it is, it is so fixated on protecting its territory and defending its righteousness that it can't even see those glaring contradictions. And so one of the questions to ask ourselves, how do we assess this in our own lives? And again, it's going to come up again and again, and I just think it's important to kind of establish this early on. How, how, do, we, how, do, we, how do we assess this in our own lives? Well, you know, I think as we would look through the Scripture, and we're not going to do that right now, but, but there's, there's a simple a simple question that, that we can ask ourselves. And it's this, do I forgive unconditionally? Do I forgive unconditionally? Because that's a mark of someone who follows Jesus Christ. That's a mark of, of someone who recognizes, you know what, I'm, I'm like Levi, I'm, a, I'm despised, I'm a sinner, and it's only because of the free grace of Christ that I have been forgiven, so why, why would I not forgive? 
And it's that commitment to forgiving unconditionally that cuts right through that web of contradiction. And it's so liberating. But this is the mark of those who despise the free grace of Christ. And yet we find Jesus being so patient, even to his enemies, and we see him explaining free grace. We see him answering the questions. So we've seen free grace exhibited in Jesus calling Levi. We understand that there are those who despise free grace, that those who are scandalized by free grace, and they raise these questions. So verse 17, Jesus answers the questions. And notice here that the question was addressed to Jesus' disciples. But Jesus being the godly, bold man that he is, and understanding that his disciples are still weak in the faith, he steps in like a man to answer the question and to defend them. Oh, for godly, bold men like this. And this is what he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. When Jesus answers the question, the first thing we find is that sinners are the objects of free grace. Sinners are the objects of free grace. When he explains free grace, what is the first thing he says? He says, look, Pharisees, I'm going to give you something you're going to agree with. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Do you agree with that? Oh, of course we do. Right? I don't go to my doctor when I'm feeling well and just say, hey, you know, I want to say hey to you. You know, I, I go when I'm sick. I want to do something. And the Pharisees would immediately also say, yeah, okay, you know, sin and sickness go together. And so Jesus is, is in great wisdom coming right onto their turf and, and he's giving them something that, the, that they would agree with. And then he, and then he says, now, now understand this. I came not to call the righteous. But sinners, I came to deal with those who are soul sick. I came to give free grace, to give salvation to those who are in desperate need of a Savior. Now, is he saying that there are some who don't? Oh, of course not. But what he is acknowledging is there, there are those who are so self-righteous and so locked away in their citadel of self-righteousness that they don't even see their need for a Savior. He addresses them in John chapter 9 and verses 39 and 40 as those who say they see and their guilt remains. Christ is the physician of the sick soul. And what liberation this is when we start to understand that sinners are the objects of free grace, what liberation there is to acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I need it more than anyone else. Paul said he was the worst of sinners. I'm going to challenge that because I think I am. Right? That's the call of the sin-sick soul. That's the call of the soul that longs for Jesus Christ. Christ is the physician. Sinners are the objects, and he came to call 
sinners. And his cause, we'll find out, will harden. It hardens those who see themselves as righteous. But then in verses 18 through 22, there's another, another aspect of free grace that is explained. First of all, sinners are the objects of free grace. But now, John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, we're told. And people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And, and, and there's a link here with what's happening, right? They're, they're feasting. Jesus is feasting with his disciples at Levi's house. First, there's a question, why are you eating with them? And then second, there's a question, and why are you eating at all? Because John's disciples and the Pharisees aren't. They're fasting. And what we find here are two groups of people. There are the confused John's disciples. They're trying to work this thing out. They're following the forerunner of Christ. And there's the combative, the Pharisees. They're both fasting, and they're fasting according to the tradition that the Pharisees established that you fast on Mondays and Thursdays. In fact, it's interesting that in the early church, the early, the early church would fast on Wednesdays and Fridays because they didn't want to be like the hypocrites. This had no Old Testament instruction. The only Old Testament instruction for a fast was the Day of Atonement. There were other voluntary opportunities. But the Pharisees had made this, you know, a standard of righteousness. Do you fast on Monday and Thursday? Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus answers that with the parable with the, with the description, the picture, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. What Jesus is describing here, any fasting that was being done by John's disciples or the Pharisees, it was a fasting in, in anticipation of something. Well, that something is here. That someone is here. Christ is here. And there's joy in the presence of Christ. And it would be wrong for his disciples to fast in his presence just as it would be, it would be rude at best for a guest or an attendant of the bridegroom to fast in the time of celebration. In fact, the celebration of the coming of the bridegroom was such a wonderful event that even the Pharisees could break fast on Monday and Thursday for the celebration. It's wonderful how Jesus in his wisdom answers these questions. He says, even you break fast for, for a wedding. Well, guess what? The bridegroom is here. And he's obviously referring to himself because of what we have in verse 20 when he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. And that's a reference to his crucifixion. The bridegroom will be taken away. There, there's joy mixed with sadness. But the emphasis is that the person is here. 
Christ is here and there is joy and Christ's presence calls for joy. When Jesus says, follow me, he is calling for people to follow a person, not to fulfill a ritual. And the Pharisees were stuck in their rituals. And Jesus says, no, it's about a person and that person is here. The bridegroom is here. And not only that, but because Christ is here, his work, what he is bringing to the table is entirely new in its quality. And because it is entirely new, because Christ's work is entirely new in its quality, the, the, the tradition that the Pharisees have put on as a rubbish heap on top of the Torah, it, it's old and it's, and it's, it needs to be cast away like an old garment. You can't put a new patch on that old garment. It's going to shrink and pull away and, re- and destroy the whole thing. You can't put wa- new wine into old wineskins because the new, the new wine has to expand in its fermenting process. Old wineskins have maxed out. And Jesus is indicating, look, your systems, they've maxed out. You can't put Christ into this old system. You can't put Christ into any system. It has to be Christ alone. When we see free grace explained, Jesus tells us that sinners are the objects of free grace and that Christ alone is the source of free grace. He's the bridegroom. He's the new wine. So just to recap what God is teaching us in this passage, Jesus forgives sinners. Aren't you thankful? And his free grace, it scandalizes the self-righteous. But we see free grace exhibited. Christ summons sinners and Christ sups with sinners. It's a, it's a complete work. And we f- see free grace explained in that sinners are the objects of free grace And Christ alone is the source of free grace. So are you scandalized by that? Or are you satisfied in Christ? Have you been made a new creature? Have the old things passed away and have all things become new? That's what it is to be forgiven. That's what it is to have have experienced the free grace of Christ as he summons you as a sinner to get up and follow him right into the kingdom of God and right to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What delight there is. What delight there is of heavenly fellowship with Jesus Christ. Jesus forgives sinners. Has he forgiven you? Father, we thank you tonight that you sent your son, Jesus, out of your love for us to redeem your people. We do love you and we thank you for the work that's been done in Jesus. 
In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.